Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Gist is brought to you by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, September 18th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Connecticut police use slain victims' Scrooge McDuck medallion to convict man. A man who ripped a custom-made gold chain and medallion featuring the Disney character Scrooge McDuck from a dying man's neck, then sold it to a pawn shop, was convicted of first-degree robbery. The robber obviously figured that the Greater Hartford Pawn Shop community must be awash in Scrooge McDuck jewelry. There is no way that they'll pin this one on me. Body cams? Community policing? No. What we need to do to solve crimes is track gold renderings of parsimonious Scottish waterfowl. That is the way to go. And take this as a lesson for yourself. If you want to deter crime, all you have to do is have your jewelry recast to depict minor cartoon characters. So a stick-up man will ask you for your chain and you'll say, no, no, you don't understand. This is a 14-karat gold snagglepuss. No fence will touch this. It's impossible to move on the black market. Got a diamond ring? Have the setting touched up to include drawings of Dick Dastardly and Muttley or the funky phantom. Hell, Hanna-Barbera were never mugged and that's for a reason. On today's show, don't be a Peru, join us, all will be explained, and I am using the first meaning of Peru, not the second meaning, you'll get it soon. But first, the year is 1967, the hits are sweet and soulful, the guest is Chris Malamphy, as he takes us back to the top of the charts. The year was 1967, and music was in the air. Well, not just in the air, but on the radio. Your home of the hits. We were playing things like the Monkees and the Buckinghams and Strawberry Alarm Clock and the actual Beatles, who all of these other bands were trying to be, but there was other music in the mix. The Turtles. Wait, they're also trying to be the Beatles. They're also named after an animal. All right, Aretha Franklin was there. Bobby Gentry was there. The Box Tops were there. Lulu was there. We're going to go over everyone who is there because here right now is Chris Malamphy. He writes, why is this song number one for Slate? But more importantly to me, because I'm an egotist, he comes on the gist to discuss the number one songs of a given year. This year is 1967, a seminal year in music history. We say that a lot, but it's really true. I mean, this was the summer of love, right, Chris? It absolutely was, Mike. How you doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. So, okay. So I did notice you have a couple monkeys tunes up there. 
They're essentially trying to be the Beatles, right? The Monkees were conceived for a television show specifically in the vein of the Beatles, right? So though we think of 1967 as that groovy summer of love, the Monkees were absolutely the biggest act of 1967. The Monkees held down the number one spot on the album chart something like 30 weeks out of the year. It's a little hard to overstate just how popular they were. Well, then in June, Sgt. Pepper comes out, but none of the Beatles' number one songs are on Sgt. Pepper. I don't understand how Beatles' number one songs came about, at least until, I guess, maybe by by uh, Let It Be, those were songs on the album. But in 67, the songs were Penny Lane, Hello, Goodbye, All, All You, you Need, Need Is, is Love. Love. Yep. None of these are on Sgt. Pepper. No singles were released from Sgt. Pepper. It was the first Beatles album to have no singles issued from it, so even though they're obviously several songs that we all know very well from it. And it basically dominated the summer of 67. It spent 15 weeks at number one. It was a huge hit. But uh, yeah, to your point, all of the songs that went to number one in 1967 were actually all issued as standalone singles. By 60s standards, the Beatles were taking a little too long to record Sgt. Pepper. EMI was getting antsy and they wanted to put something out in the marketplace. So they took uh, the songs Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever, released them as a double-sided single. And what both songs had in common, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, is that they were both songs about the Beatles' childhood. Penny Lane is a Paul song. It's a song about McCartney's childhood and happy memories of uh, the part of Liverpool where he grew up. And Strawberry Fields Forever is a John song, and it's uh, about, you know, Lennon's memories of a small park near his house where he went to go hide away. And appropriately enough, they were released as a single together. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Nothing is real. Probably the most interesting of these three singles in terms of its creation is the song that went to number one in the middle of the summer of 67, which was All You Need Is Love. Uh, That was a song that was all but commissioned by the United Kingdom uh, for a a live broadcast uh, called Our World, a broadcast that was going to bring together literally hundreds of millions of people. You know, the concept of a global live broadcast was still very novel in 1967. And uh, basically there were, you know, musical or theatrical performances from all these countries. And the UK was going to be represented by, no surprise, the Beatles. The conceit, if you will, was that the Beatles would record a song live in front of you uh, in this global broadcast. In In point of fact, the song was not only written ahead of time, It was also uh, backing tracks for the song were recorded ahead of time. However, the orchestra uh, in the song is playing live. The Beatles uh, are uh, more or less singing live. I think there was a lot of studio sweetening later. It's kind of a raucous record. It begins with the French national anthem. It includes pieces of Glenn Miller's In the Mood. 
it closes with the Beatles almost psychedelically chanting bits of their old songs like She Loves You and Yesterday. I want to go to the Rolling Stones because of all the Rolling Stones big hits, I think Ruby Tuesday is the nicest song, right? It's the least, like if the, if the Beatles are pop and the Stones are rock, it's that's very reductive. But if the Stones are scruffy. This is the least scruffy Stones song. And I think it's just because of the Beatles influence. Could, could we even call it perhaps the unbrown sugar? <laughs> yeah. You know, Ruby Tuesday and Penny Lane both go to number one within March of 1967. And you could say that both bands are going through their Baroque period. Mm-hmm. It's very courtly. It's almost uh, medieval. Uh, It's got Brian Jones playing a recorder on it. It's basically a lyric about either one of Keith Richards' old girlfriends or a groupie. That story's been told multiple ways over the years, and it's probably an amalgam of both. Don't question why she needs to be so free. She'll tell you it's the only way to be. She just can't be chained to a life where nothing's gained or nothing's lost. Flute-like sounds, by the way, are a big theme of 1967. There are all sorts of records that have, you know, various woodwind instruments, and this is just one of many. The Turtles. The Young Rascals, anything to say about these guys? I like the Turtles. Yeah, I mean... Flo, Eddie. I'd I'd like Flo and Eddie a little better if they would stop suing people all the time, (laughs) which seems to be the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of their career is is suing people, sometimes to good ends, sometimes to less good ends. Happy Together, I mean, talk about a song with many lives and a great history. It falls in that same semi-Baroque pocket as uh, Ruby Tuesday and Penny Lane. Uh, It uh, actually knocked Penny Lane out of the number one spot, which tells you how popular uh, Happy Together was in the spring of 67. Well, these days, Flo, Eddie, possibly the Rascals too. They don't get much R-E-S-P-E-C-T, but in 1967, Aretha did. This is the moment for Aretha Franklin. This is the most apocryphal story of all time. It's been repeated by so many people, and nobody can seem to get the quote right. But reportedly, Mr. Redding was quoted as saying, that girl stole my song. Uh, He he said it respectfully and admiringly, and he was quite right. She really reinvented it. Uh, She and Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records rethought the entire structure of the song. The original Otis Redding recording doesn't have a bridge or really a chorus. Aretha added the R-E-S-P-E-C-T spelling. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, take out T-C-T. 
she added the Sakatumi. That those are her sisters singing the Sakatumi, Sakatumi, Sakatumi part. Jerry Wexler had the idea to give it a, a sax bridge, which is basically an interpolation of uh, uh, Sam and Dave's uh, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby. So the whole record's been reupholstered, and obviously it's one of the great recordings, period, never yeah. mind R&B recordings of all time. Take care of TCB. That was hers, too, right? That That's was hers, too. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine now that hashtag would be everywhere? It was, it was hashtag flawless before <laughs> hashtag flawless. <laughs> Have I said this to you before? The Doors are my least favorite kind of classic rock band. Just don't like them. I mean, maybe it's that I've heard Light My Fire too often. Haven't we all really? I mean, you know, Light My Fire is kind of oral wallpaper at this point. Let's give The Doors a little credit for being dark in a year that was very bright and shiny. Box Tops, The Letter. That's a classic. Yeah. I, uh, Box Tops the Letter, man, what an interesting record. First of all, it's uh, a, an amazing vocal performance by a, wait for it, 16-year-old Alex Chilton. Alex Chilton, with that, that gruff voice, uh, he was told in the studio, no, make it gruffer. He does not sound 16 years old. He is singing uh, the letter uh, in uh, a very low register that he basically never sang in again. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm a going home. My baby just wrote me a letter. I don't care how much money I gotta spend. Got to get back to my baby again. Lonely days are gone. I'm a going home. My baby just wrote me a letter. And now, and this is, I think, this is where we come to you and your expertise, where you can answer, how did this song get to number one? I love it, but I just don't understand how the ode to Billy Joe, Bobby Gentry, and the Tallahatchie Bridge, why did he jump unexplained? But how did the song get to number one? Ode to Billy Joe is one of the most left-field interesting, bizarre number one hits in the rock era. Oh, I would good. Argue. I'm glad you said that. It'd be weird if it were. It is so strange. It is It is such a left field record. It was a huge hit. Not only a number one single, a number one album for Bobby Gentry. By the way, written by her solo. She's from Chickasaw County, Mississippi. Talk about write what you know. She's quite literally writing what she knew. Although, Obviously, she was, you know, spinning a fable about, you know, uh, a man who jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. In interviews, she said that what the song is about is indifference and, and, and sort of storytelling and rumor mongering. The lyric of the song, which is, you know, by far what makes it so interesting, is told around a, a dinner table. I mean, literally, there's lines in the song about, you know, as we passed around the black eyed peas or pass the biscuits, please. Those are lyrics in the song as they're recounting these tales of suicide and, you know, dirty dealings and murder. You know, it, it is it is basically a Southern Gothic kind of murder ballad or suicide ballad. I'm not sure what you call it. The sound of the record, I'm, I'm talking too much about the lyric. The, the sound of the record is wonderfully bizarre and almost psychedelic in a way. It's like psychedelic country pop. Papa said to Mama as he passed around the black eyed peas Well, Billy Joe never had a lick of sense Pass the biscuits, please There's five more acres in the lower 40 I got to plow 
mama said it was a shame about Billy Joe anyhow. Seems like nothing ever comes to no good up on Choctaw Ridge. And now Billy Joe McAllister's jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. There's a popular memory of 1967, right? It's the summer of love, which implies generation gap. It implies, you know, a, a druggy kind of youth movement. But honestly, the number one hits of 1967 are more sugary than druggy. They are, you know, uh, taking that summer of love vibe and making it more palatable for the masses, uh, whether that's, you know, uh, the prefab pop of the monkeys or yeah. the baroque pop of the stones and the beatles that particular year or the adult contemporary pop of the association or you know frank and nancy sinatra it's it's taking the the love vibe in the air and kind of harnessing and channeling it into to something uh, more pure pop It's been said that the music industry is good at taking real cultural movements and making them palatable, you know, music for the masses. I'd say 1967 is a year like that. The hits totally read as of their time, but the number one hits weren't fiery or seriously psychedelic. Many of them are psychedelic light. I say some of the same stuff about Chris Malamphy all the time. He is a writer for Slate. His column is Why Is This Song Number One? And he dissects the top hits of the year. It was 1967, a wonderful year. Thank you, Chris. You got it, Mike. SAP HANA helps the world's best businesses rise above complexity and get answers to questions most other companies don't even think to ask so they can become more agile, increase capacity, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future instead of just reacting to the present, and totally reimagine the way they do business. It's simple. The answer is SAP HANA. Run SAP. Run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And now the spiel. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. I will explain. So I had a little quip lag. That's the thing where I figured out what I wanted to say a little late. Carly Fiorina. Remember yesterday we were talking about her performance in the debate? And it just hit me. Her debate performance makes you realize exactly why she was asked to head Hewlett Packard. But then when you dig into the substance of what she was saying, it makes you realize exactly why she failed as head of Hewlett Packard. I didn't say it then, and I guess it's too late to say it now, except it's not too late because it is an Antan twig. That three-week period where we look back on all the things said, unsaid, or missaid. Like this correction yesterday, I said Paul Krugman, Times columnist, was for raising interest rates. He's not. He always blasts the inflation fear crowd. He's right to do that. But he's dovish. He's soft money. I get it. I guess my problem with Krugman is not that he's not right. He's actually almost always right. And he's actually convincing. But he only says like three things. He says, austerity is bad. Inflation fears are overblown. And Keynes was right. I get it. I agree. Maybe I agree because I read the columns. 
But those are his only columns. Actually, sometimes he writes about politics. He's not actually so good about that. But when he writes about economic matters, he gets those right. And I, I was blaming Krugman, but then I, then I was thinking. This is sort of like, let's say it was the year 1491, and you were the editor of the Genoa Free Press, and you hired one of the best experts on geography. And then you ask him to constantly weigh in on that big question of the day, earth, round or flat. And after 34 columns where the guy's arguing it's round, oh, I'm telling you it's round, there are these people saying it's flat, they're wrong. Have I told you it's round? It might get a little old. I'm sure the flat earthers would all say, oh, all you round earthers, you're so arrogant in your beliefs. You don't respect our beliefs. It would just get exhausting. You'd just say, Nina Pinta Santa Maria. You'd throw your hands up. You'd go to the harbor and you'd ask sailors to tell their tales of sea serpents. You know, just for variety. Anyway, I had another correction, a sort of correction, of a correction. A few months ago, I was listing African countries with good U.S. relations that happen to also be dictatorships, and I put Burkina Faso in that group. Oh, no. Jonathan Kulik emailed me to say, Burkina Faso is a dictatorship no more. And I said that, said I was wrong back in February, and I was wrong back in February, but I'm not wrong now. Gunfire in Burkina Faso's capital. Moments after, a military leader appeared on television confirming a coup had taken place. And guess how I was alerted to that? Because Jonathan Culloch again emailed me with the update. Some have an RSS feed. I have Jonathan Culloch as my one man. Is Burkina Faso a dictatorship alert system? I got a lot of listener feedback on my idea to call the lost and found just the found. Most of the feedback was reasoned, insightful, well-argued. And in the cases where the listener disagreed with me, just flat out wrong. But I do want to specifically address a comment that I got on Facebook, facebook.com slash slategist. John Burke wrote, I think Michael is being willfully obtuse about that. All right, listen to me, Burke. Call me right. Call me wrong. But don't presume to know when my obtuseness is willful and when it's an honest byproduct of a defective cognitive process. But in this case, I was not wrong. I was right. How do I know I was right? Listen to this. I got a tweet from, let's say, Marin van der Waal, who said, please tell me you knew that in Dutch, it's actually called the Department of Found Objects or just Found Objects. And I found out in French, it's Objet Trouves. I don't know. I may be pronouncing that right. I don't know. Let's say I am. Objet trouves. Objet trouves, bitches. To quote Twitter follower at nickname, the nick and nickname with a Y, at nickname, upon hearing my lost and found rant, he said, at Pescami is pro found. Get it? It's a good pun. Is it lobster good? Well, call it sub lobster good. The lobster is, of course, the award for listener, Facebooker, tweeter, feedbacker who added the most to the gist in this Antan twig. So I was talking about Turkey, the country, how it's a homophone with Turkey, the bird. By the way, you know that phrase where we say, is it funny strange or funny haha? So with Turkey, it's, is it Turkey country or Turkey gobble gobble? Anyway, Brett Gibson wrote to me, since you were traveling to Turkey, here's some trivia I figured out in my time there. In English, we have a name for a bird, a turkey, that is also our name for a contemporary nation, Turkey. But in that country, Turkey, 
the same bird, Hindi, they call a turkey, a Hindi in Turkey. Hindi is also the Turkish name for a contemporary nation, Hindistan, which is India. And then he goes on to say, and in Hindi, the name for that bird is the United States of America. But then he admits he just made that last part up. And that's good. That's really good. Is it Lobstar good? Maybe it would be if it wasn't for the tweet I got from Philo, who tweets at Philo so pop. Hey, Pescami. That's at P-E-S-C-A-M-I. Hey, Pescami. Here in Brazil, Peru, P-E-R-U, is A, the country, B, turkey, and C, penis. So I tweeted him, hey, Philosopop, what do you call a turkey penis? By the way, I'm tweeting that to everyone all the time. This was the only time it was actually appropriate. But he tweeted me back. You could say, um, Peru de Peru. And then he added, and if it's a Peruvian turkey penis, you'd be able to say, um, Peru de Peru du Peru. So that, my friends, is the gist's new motto. And that is the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi has a charm bracelet featuring all the members of beloved Hanna-Barbera cartoon, The Banana Splits, Flegel, Bingo, Drooper, and Snorky. Executive producer Andy Bowers favors a rakish diamond stick pin. Its four sides each has the face of a thundercat. Tigra, Panthro, Chitara, and Lion-O. In a week and two days, or depending on when you listen to it, last year, but let's just say September 29th, 2015, we're doing a live show in Brooklyn. Samantha B is our special guest. We have a major recording artist who's the musical guest. We have all the GIST favorites. Come on down. We'll be serving cocktails. That's the GIST Live. Go to slate.com slash NYC GIST for more details. The GIST, we're a podcast and a pocket fob. The outside of the fob features the visage of a one-off Simpsons character, Poochie the Dog, and the inscription says, The gist, we're half Joe Camel and a third Fonzarelli. Um Peru de Peru du Peru, thanks for listening. And to clarify and head off the next Antan twig, yes, we know a turkey has no penis. <laughs>